Good evening. It is a joy to be here. I've been looking forward to this. I appreciate the opportunity to to share these things with you over several Wednesday nights. Um, as you've already heard, our, our theme, our subject will be family worship. It's a it is a topic that's near to my heart um, because the Lord is greatly blessed me through the practice of it. And the reason I'm excited to share with you about it is because I I want you, if you're not, I want you and your family to experience the great joy and blessing there is in worshiping the Lord together with your family on a daily basis. It is a sweet, sweet thing. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi the following verse. He said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's Philippians 1.6. I want you to note three parts to this verse. First, Paul is sure. No doubt exists in his mind of the truth of this principle. The second, the focus of this principle is what Paul called a good work. And, and this good work is the work of divine grace in the soul. Third, this work is not something that we accomplish. Rather, it is the work of God. Thus, our justifier is our sanctifier. And our rescuer is our preserver. The work of salvation is God's work from start to finish. In John Bunyan's allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, we we find a parable that helpfully illustrates this doctrine. Just after Christian passed through the, the wicked gate, he was led by a man named Interpreter into a room. And in this room, he saw a fire burning in a fireplace. And as Christian looked, he saw a man standing next to it, and the man was pouring or casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet, the text says, did the fire burn higher and hotter? What means this? Asked Christian. The interpreter said, the fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart of man. He that casts water upon it to extinguish it is the devil. But as you can see, despite this, the fire burns higher and hotter. And now you shall see the reason for that. So the interpreter took Christian around the backside of the wall where he saw another man who had a vessel in his hand. The vessel was filled with oil and the man continually cast oil secretly into the fire. What means this? asked Christian. The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in the heart. Brothers and sisters, it is a glorious truth proven in Scripture that the work of salvation is God's work. He carries it out according to the pleasure of his own will. Now, this is seen easily enough in regeneration for how can a dead man believe, and and also in justification for how can a, a, a sinner declare himself innocent. But when it comes to our sanctification and our preservation, we're prone to wander, believing that God has done his part and now we must do ours. 
One of the subtle, joy-crushing deceptions that Christians all too readily believe is that they must live as Christians in their own strength. We tend toward a pull-myself-up-by-my-own-bootstraps sort of theology when it comes to our staying saved and becoming more like Christ. But this is deadly false. You can no more sanctify yourself than you can justify yourself. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters, for he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Why do you think that you woke up this morning and you still believe the gospel? Why do you think you repented after you spoke harshly to your wife? Or why do you think your heart still desires Christ even in the midst of suffering and and affliction, temptation? This is the lesson of the fire burning in the wall. The reason that the work of grace that is being wrought in your heart continues to grow higher and hotter is because Christ is casting oil on it. He himself maintains this work. If the good work of salvation truly was begun in you, then Christ will certainly bring it to completion. Here's a simple yet profound truth that we must remember. We are kept. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Now, there's an aspect of this wonderful work that Christ does in us that I want to make plain to you tonight. Think back to the parable. When when the interpreter took Christian to the backside of the wall, he saw three things. He saw the man... He saw the vessel and he saw the oil. We know that the man is Christ. We know that the oil is his grace. But what is that vessel? What does the vessel represent? This truth, dear friends, is is life changing. Christ preserves his people by giving them grace to keep believing and keep repenting. But that grace is administered from a vessel. And that vessel is very often a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a roommate, grandfather, grandmother. Here's what I mean. God has chosen to use his people to be vessels of grace for his people. Let me put it this way. You live under the roof that you live under for this purpose, to be used by God to help Those that live there to keep believing the gospel and repenting of sin. God uses you to preserve them. How? In this way. When we pray with them and for them, when we read the scriptures to them and with them, and when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with them, we are useful in our Lord's hands as a vessel of grace by which the Savior nourishes faith and repentance in their hearts. And without question, the very best way for dads and moms and brothers and sisters and grandparents and grandchildren and roommates to be faithful in this work is to daily practice family worship. The first question that usually comes to people's minds when they're encouraged to start family worship is is this. How? What do I do? Well, we're going to get to the nuts and bolts of that this evening. But before we do, I want to make sure that you feel the weight of this responsibility. I could ask my 
my five-year-old son right now and a, a question, one of our, our catechism questions, which, which says this, do you have a soul as well as a body? I could ask Seth that, who's drawing on something over there. And, and if, he, if, he, if he's not being ornery, he could answer that question. And he would say, yes, I have a soul that can never die. Do you feel the weight of that? You are in regular contact with souls that will never die. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He, he said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Many of you have been placed as caretakers of souls that will never die. And you are either helping those souls toward heaven or directing them toward eternal death. Life is short. And we are not promised tomorrow. We must feel the weight of this so that we will act today. Several months ago, I came across a, a little book. It's called The Broken Home, Lessons in Grief. It's written by a man named Benjamin Palmer. He lived in the late 1800s here in the United States. He's a Presbyterian pastor. He suffered much. Over a period of about 20 years, he buried an infant son, three teenage daughters, his wife, and then his mother. Each chapter is dedicated to describing the events leading up to each one's passing. It, it is a profoundly moving little book. I, I, I commend it to you. I felt as though my, my heart would break as I read how this faithful shepherd and, and his wife as well helped each one prepare for the great change. How they walked to the edge of eternity with them and then lovingly counseled them into the arms of Christ for eternity. I want to share a passage with you from that. As one of his teenage daughters declined due to tuberculosis, they had this conversation. I want you to picture a sparse bedroom, uh, wooden floors, large windows, sun shining through. A father is sitting next to a bed where a girl of 15 years is, is laying. She's coughing. She's taking short breaths, feverish, pale, distressed. Her father, Benjamin, said, Do you feel, my daughter, that you place your whole trust in the Savior of sinners? Yes. I feel that my trust is in Christ alone, was her answer. Her father said, Well, then, you are not afraid to die. No, not exactly. But, Father, it is a fearful thing to die. Father answered, so it is, my darling, to the unrepentant, but to God's children, it is but going home. A few days later, when death was drawing near, her mother was by her side, and suddenly the young girl called out, oh mother, I'm dying. Her mother replied, 
Daughter, I believe you are. Trust your Savior. The girl was unable to speak because her mouth had filled with blood and phlegm that she just coughed up. But she assented. She nodded cheerfully, energetically with her head. And as, she, as soon as she could speak, she added with great eagerness, I do, I do. And then sank back exhausted. Oh, friends, how we would do all that we could to help our children or our spouse to, to cling to Christ if they were on their deathbed. How we would pray for them and speak to them of the wonderful kindness of God in Jesus Christ. How we would point them to the Savior and sing hymns over them. We would do all we could to help them to Christ. Hear me clearly, dear Christian. Your wife, your husband, your children, they are on their deathbeds. This life is hurrying to an end, and we only have a short time before each one is to stand before the judgment. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and afterward vanisheth away. Please don't misunderstand me. You can't save anyone, but God can, and he has chosen you to be the means of that work. Do you not tremble? Will you not act? What shall we do? We must follow the ancient path. Matthew Henry wrote, turn your families into little churches. I've discovered the great joy and benefit of taking up his exhortation, putting plans to that, and carrying those plans out every day. So my aim over the next several Wednesday nights is to help you make your home a place where God is worshipped regularly through singing, praying, and reading the scriptures. I want to help you gather your little flock together so that you all may be nourished by the grace of Jesus Christ. If you are the head of a household, you've been called to provide for and protect your family. If you are the helpmate, the wife and mother, you've been called to nurture and care for those in your charge. You are both called to serve one another and to raise your children in the fear of the Lord. Children, it is your duty to obey your parents and submit to their leadership and teaching with thanksgiving, for they are watching for your souls. Now, I know there are also non-traditional households here as well, and, and these same principles apply. Think about those with whom you live. The Lord has provided for them. And you are that provision. You are who you are, and you've been given what you've been given so that you may teach and guide and bless and correct them, all for God's glory. Your life is meant to be given for them unto God. And my aim is to help you to do that faithfully and biblically. When you do, you're joining your forefathers who also carefully watched for the souls of their family. We do this by leading our families to worship God in spirit and in truth. Consider Adam and Eve. They witnessed the the sacrifice of an animal to prepare skins to to cover their nakedness and shame. And they guarded in their hearts the holiness of God and, and their own sin sickness. How did Abel know that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin? He knew because his parents taught him how the one true and living God was to be worshipped. After the water subsided, Noah built an altar to the Lord. 
and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, Genesis 8.20. This act of worship, as well as all other acts of worship on the ark, were plainly family worship. Similarly, the patriarchs left evidence of their times of family worship all through their travels, at every encampment, in the form of altars. And this shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly what the Lord said would characterize Abraham's responsibility towards his household. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Genesis 18, 18 and 19. How did Isaac know that the sacrifice was missing as he and his father made their way to the place of worship? Because he had worshipped the one true and living God many times before with his father. Those faithful saints were vessels in the hand of Christ by which the oil of grace was administered. Now, I have to confess that I, I struggled with this for many years It wasn't that I didn't desire to care for my family, for their spiritual well-being. I just wasn't sure how to go about it. I struggled to maintain consistency. I felt insecure, um, unsure about how to carry it out. It was difficult for me to make it a priority. Several years ago, I took stock of of where I was in, in my life, where I was investing my time and my energy. And among other things, two sobering truths rose to the surface. First was I was struck by the fact that I would give an account for how I shepherded the little flock over which God had placed me. Secondly, I realized that my faithfulness in shepherding my family came down to the the choices I made day by day. I'd completed a two-year assignment on the mission field. I was attending seminary. I'd pastored local churches. I, I leading a missions organization. But I still wasn't taking the care of my family's spiritual lives as I knew I should have been. We were faithful in church, and sure, I was vigilant to to keep out harmful influences. We would even spend time reading the scriptures and praying from time to time. But but I knew that my haphazard spiritual leadership was, was not what it should be. Something was amiss. It took some time, but... Eventually, the Lord helped me gain a picture of, of how precious the souls of my wife and children are to their Heavenly Father and how weighty a responsibility I'd been given to watch for them, to shepherd, shepherd them. I found that, that someone who consistently leads his household to worship the living God is a person who has two important pieces in place. First, he has the conviction to do it. Conviction to do it. And by that, I mean that he's, he's, he's moved to do it. Not that he feels guilt-ridden or, or pressure from the outside, because that won't last. He'll, he'll give up, fizzle out. He'll abandon the work. By conviction, I mean someone who would move heaven and earth so that their little ones may drink from the deep well of Scripture. I'm talking about a person who says, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what I have to give up. I will faithfully shepherd this little flock. The Lord gave me that conviction, but it was only half of the equation. I found that a person not only needs the conviction to carry out this work, but they also need a plan. 
That's what I lacked in the beginning. For example, when I first started, I, I was passionate and excited about it. The Lord had convicted me of this critical work, but um, it didn't quite work out as I had envisioned. My thought was to practice family worship every day, maybe even twice a day if we could pull it off. The problem was that I quickly became overwhelmed by the task. I knew that family worship should consist of the basic elements of, of reading scripture, of prayer, of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and, and that seemed simple enough. But it turned out that it actually wasn't simple, at least for me, because every time that we gathered together, I had to figure out what we were going to read. Um, I had to decide if I was going to prepare a lesson with it. Uh, what song would we sing? Would, would we sing it with a piano or maybe a, a, an accompaniment track? Should we sing it a cappella? How should we pray? Should we take requests? Should we go around the room? Should, should everyone pray? Should it just be me? Something that started out as joyful and exhilarating turned into, turned into a burden and something that I felt guilty about, that I started to dread. That set me on a quest. <laughs> I needed some sort of help, something that would give me structure, accountability, and depth as we gathered around our kitchen table or, or living room day by day. Uh, as I searched, I was really unable to find something that met the needs of my family, so I started compiling something on my own. Uh, it took about two years of trial and error and, and lots of feedback from a covey of kiddos to finally produce a, a, a family worship guide. And, and that's what, what Jeff mentioned there at the beginning. A guide to family worship was the result of, of those years of trial and error. And, and it's, there's really not a lot to it. It's not rocket science. It's a simple, repeatable, and practical guide that, that's helped my family and I believe can help other families as well. And, and here's what it consists of. Very simple. Six elements. The first one is scripture reading. The second is a memory verse. The third is catechism, question and answers. The fourth is a confessional reading. The fifth is a pre-written prayer. It's taken from the Puritans. And the sixth is a, is a hymn. Now, most days we gather together and I lead my little flock in a time of family worship using that guide. And I'll comment more on this in a bit, but I also want to give you a bit of counsel concerning your own soul as you enter into this work. A critical component to sticking it out over the long haul is, is keeping your heart warm by the gospel fire. Be careful that you don't let a good plan take the place of a tender heart toward Christ. If we don't seek nourishment for our own souls, then, then we'll starve those that we're ministering to. Husbands, if your heart is not tender toward Christ and, and joyfully submitted to his word, then your wife's heart will shiver also. Mothers, if your soul is weak and feeble because you've neglected to feed it from the word of truth, then, then your children will end up spiritually famished and, and have no interest in Christ and no strength to lift their voices and their hearts to the Lord. So let me encourage you to make it a habit of preaching the gospel to yourself each day, e each hour. Not only did the gospel save us, but, but it sustains us. It consists of three simple steps. First, cause your heart to be still before the Lord. Second, rehearse some expression of the gospel message. 
Finally, allow the reality of the gospel message to affect you. As you do that, your sharing of God's word will have more power. Your your prayer will be more humble and fervent. Your counseling will will be more gracious and life-giving. Preach the gospel to yourself. Richard Baxter wrote this. He said, They will likely fill when you have been much with God. That which is most on your hearts is like to be most in their ears. We are nurses of Christ's little ones. If we forbear taking food ourselves, we shall famish them. Now a call to action. Your first inclination may be to get started immediately. You may desire to gather your little flock as soon as possible and begin to practice family worship. And I I hope that's your desire. I commend that desire. And And if you're excited about practicing family worship, I praise God for this sign of grace in your life. But let me give you some counsel. Start slow. Um, Begin with a simple order. Read a short passage. Sing one stanza of a hymn that your whole family knows well. Pray a short prayer to end. If if you're just starting this practice, it's probably not the time for a 45-minute sermon, three hymns, and uh, a long prayer time. Start slow. Be merciful. Besides that, I want you to consider something else. Um, I I think this action will help strengthen and stabilize your conviction. Before begin practicing family worship, come before the Lord and pour your heart out to Him. This isn't a matter of seeking the Lord's will. We, We know the Lord's will in this matter. This time of prayer is is a time of repenting of the sin of neglect. Selfishness, pride, laziness, rebellion, or whatever other sins have kept you from shepherding your family. And I say this as a man who has had to do that and still must do that. If you are in Christ, those sins have have already been paid for. You have an advocate with the Father. Seek His forgiveness and ask for His help moving forward. One other call to action Specifically for heads of households, husbands, fathers. Before you begin practicing family worship, come before your wife and your family. Speak to them honestly and tenderly about this matter. If you need to ask forgiveness, then then do that. Explain to them that you desire to shepherd them faithfully. Help them to understand the deep affection that you have for them in Christ Jesus. And that you you take seriously your responsibility to shepherd them. Talk to them about the practicalities of family worship. Help them to understand what it will be like and what they should expect. Now you might be asking yourself, well, what will it be like? <laughs> what should they expect? So let me, let me shift now and transition into a time of, of considering some of those...